First Christian Church of Chiefland brings you the good news. And now, Tom Show. Nine-part series entitled "Got Joy?" Question mark. As I gave thought about this sermon series, I got to thinking. What's one thing that people probably need more than anything else? Well, they might think they need money or they need more time or... But as I think about our times, what goes on just paying attention to the news for one hour, and sometimes that's about all you can stomach in a month or a year. I think the one thing that people really need in their life is more joy. And I'm entitled today's sermon, Exponential Joy. Because I think that as we get joy, it should never, ever be enough. Joy should overflow in our lives. And as it overflows, it grows exponentially. That means it just doesn't grow a little bit. It just keeps multiplying and multiplying and multiplying. It's like that old thing, you take one penny today and you put it on the table or you put it in your bank and tomorrow you double that, make it two pennies. Now in two days, wow, you save three pennies. Then on day three you take the two pennies and you double it to four pennies. Three days gone by and you saved the whole seven pennies. Wow, it's going to take a long time to get a lot of pennies, isn't it? But if you double that every single day from four pennies to eight pennies, eight pennies to 16 pennies, 16 to 32, by 33 days, you have saved over six billion pennies. (laughs) Because it's exponential. And that's how our joy should be. Let me ask you, does our faith show us how to meet any and every situation and come out on top? From slight adjustment to major makeover, the Bible guides our steps, and the key is this, our attitude. It's our attitude. In a book titled Laugh Again, Chuck Swindoll relates a true story that illustrates the innocence of childhood. One evening, our grandmother was spending time with a very precocious granddaughter. And the little girl looked up and asked, How old are you, Grandma? And the woman was startled, and she responded, Well, honey, when you're my age, you don't share your age with anybody. And the little girl said, Oh, come on, Grandma, you can trust me. She says, No, dear, I never tell anyone my age. So the grandmother got busy fixing dinner, and before she knew it, she realized her granddaughter had been absent for about 20 minutes. Much too long, so she checked upstairs, and the child had taken grandma's purse and dumped it on the bed and was looking through the best, and there she had grandmother's driver's license in her hand. (laughs) And when their eyes met, the child had said, Grandma, you're 76. Why, yes, I am. How did you know that? I found the date on your birthday here on your driver's license, subtracted that year from this year. You're 76 years old. 
Well, that's right, sweetheart. Your grandmother is 76. And the girl continued staring at the driver's license, and then she added this. But, Grandma, you also made an F in sex. <laughs> now, there's an innocence about children that gets squeezed out of us as we wrestle with issues like war and politics and health concerns and mortgages. Studies show that children laugh Get this, about four times more than adults. And unfortunately, some of the most serious people around tend to be those who profess faith. Think about it. Does the stereotypic Bible-believing Christian ever have a smile on his or her face? I remember Chuck Downey telling a story about my, my mentor, Gary Chirago, which he mentored Gary. So I guess you could say Chuck is like my grandfather in the faith. But Chuck said he remembers when he was preaching there in Lake Mountain, Ohio. And I don't remember the sermon he was preaching, but he said he was preaching and they got to the invitation hymn. And here comes this guy down the aisle to be baptized. And he had a big afro and a big bushy beard. And he was dressed like a biker. And he had the biggest smile on his face. And Chuck said... That was my friend Gary. He'd be my mentor. He'd be my preacher for a lot of years. But Chuck said, I immediately hated the guy. <laughs> he said, because I looked out at my congregation and they all looked like they were sucking on dill pickles all morning. <laughs> he said, what did this guy have to be happy about? He was still walking down with his sins. And all those people out there had their sins forgiven. And where was their smile? See, it's all about attitude, isn't it? In this new series, I hope God will turn that stereotypic frown into a spirit-filled smile for us all. Over the next nine weeks, we'll explore one of the most infectious books in the New Testament. It's the book of Philippians. Philippians is only 104 verses long, but over and over again, joy splashes out like a rubber ball popping up from underneath the submerged water. If you're having problems with troubles, grief, depression, and struggles, the book of Philippians is one of the best books to read and study. Twelve times we find the Greek word for joy or joyful in the four short chapters of Philippians. And the message in this letter is fairly simple. But it has revolutionary potential to transform our outlook on life. And today we'll consider the first 11 verses of this remarkable book. In Philippians chapter 1, I'd like to read the first two verses. Paul and Timothy. See, it grabs it right away. Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the bishops and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning, as we begin this most wonderful book, that we'll understand how joy can become exponential in our life. It can spill out like liquid in a cup that's overflowing. And that will allow that joy, that attitude of joy, 
to overflow not only in our life, but into the lives of others. And people will look at us and say, where does all this joy come from? And we'll, uh, we'll be able to say it's because of you. It's because of your son Jesus, what he's done for us, and how he affects our lives. Help us, Lord, to see this wonderful book and what it is for us to ignite the joy in our life. For this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The authors of Philippians are Paul and Timothy. And even though Paul wrote 13 of the New Testament documents, he still refers to himself first as a servant. Now the Greek word for serving in verse 1 is doulos. You might circle that word in your Bible. A doulos is a bond servant or a slave in the sense of master-slave. Like Christ is the master and we are the slave. A doulos is someone who voluntarily submits themselves, someone who chooses to be a slave to God. When you came down the aisle and you took the preacher's hand and you confessed uh, the name of Jesus as your Lord and Master and you were baptized in the watery grave, you made a choice to be a slave to Jesus, a doulos. In Exodus chapter 21, verses 5 and 6, it describes a slave who refuses the opportunity for freedom and resubmits himself to his master for life. The scripture says, but if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out as a free man, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him permanently. And that's a picture of what doulos means. A doulos is a bondservant who gives up his or her personal rights to serve God. It's when we allow God's grace to pierce our heart with the cross of Christ and the gospel message. You see, Paul's ministry partner in Philippi had his protege, Timothy. And whenever we read about Paul's ministry, he's surrounded by other people. No re I mean, one reason Paul was so fruitful was because he never ministered alone. He never ministered alone. Verse 1 indicates the letter was first sent to the saints in Christ Jesus in Philippi. Now I want you to understand something. The Bible refers to every Christ follower as a saint. The word saint in scripture is not used for a select group of faith heroes. Okay? You, if you've accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you've been obedient to the gospel and been immersed into Christ, guess what? You are a saint. St. Alan! St. <laughs> Tom. St. Ferris. St. Kitty. St. Fred. I could just put your saint and say all your names. Because you are a saint, according to the scripture. I know a good preacher, he always signs his letters, St. Dick. His name is Richard Chambers. It's always St. Dick. Everybody knows him as St. Dick. You are a saint. 
It describes all of us as declared righteousness by God on the basis of his grace through our faith and obedience in Christ. So why don't you turn to the person next to you right now and I want you to say this. You're a saint. There you go. Now, here you go. Here's what. I want you to believe it. I want you to believe it. Because guess what? You're someone special to God. So much that he calls you saint. And don't listen to what your family trust argue that you're not. (laughs) All right? In addition to the Christ followers in Philippi, the letter is also addressed to the overseers and deacons. Now these were leaders in the local church. Overseer is a term that is used interchangeably with elder. Or some... uh, Versions might say bishops and deacons. It's the same. The overseers, the bishops, the elders were all the same person. Or men, all the same persons. The men in the congregation who were serving in that position. The term deacon refers to a work in the church of men who had been set apart for a specific service. This is a greeting Paul often uses in his letters when he says to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the focus is on God's grace. The unmerited favor he so freely bestows and the supernatural peace that follows, all which comes from God through faith in Jesus Christ. You see, when we start this book, immediately the first two verses should excite us. It should pump us up for the next verse. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. For us to appreciate what Paul is saying, we need to understand what happened when he was in Philippi. So I want to go, you know, uh, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there, but I'm not going to read a whole lot. But in Acts chapter 16. The chapter opens with Paul ministering in what is now the country of Turkey on his second missionary journey. And Paul and Silas were revisiting the churches Paul had established on his first missionary journey. And along the way, according to verse 3 of 16th chapter, Paul added Timothy to their ministry team. And remember that Paul lists Timothy as his co-author of the Philippian letter. And up to this point, the gospel still had not crossed into Europe. But there was about to change. In verse 9, God moved in a powerful way that altered history. And that event was known as the Macedonian call. And this was God's call to the Apostle Paul to cross over the Aegean Sea from Asia into Europe. And this is when the gospel first arrived in Europe. And verse 10 also includes an important detail. You see, in verse 10, Luke, the author of Acts, begins to use we for the very first time. From this point on, Luke is an eyewitness to most of the events recorded in the rest of the book. And according to verses 11 and 12, the missionary team's first stop in Europe was where? Philippi. And Philippi is located in what we now call northern Greece. And two significant conversions happened in Philippi in the 16th chapter. The first was a wealthy cloth merchant named Lydia, and the second was the town jailer. Lydia's conversion is recorded in verses 13 through 15. Apparently there wasn't a synagogue in Philippi because there were too, many, or too few Jews. And as a result, the Jews met on the Sabbath 
by the river for prayer. And one day Paul showed up sharing the gospel message. And Lydia, along with the other members of her household, heard the gospel, accepted Christ, and were immersed into Christ. And after that, Lydia invited the missionary team to stay at her home. And her home then became the base of operations for the first church in Europe. Well, the second important conversion was the Philippian jailer. And we read about it in the beginning of verse 16. A demon-possessed slave girl was being used by her owners to make money telling fortunes. And after the girl harassed Paul for several days, he cast out the demon. And the slave owners then caused an uproar because their source of income had been eliminated. And Paul and Silas were flogged and thrown into prison. And they were locked in the inner cell. And just to be safe, they also had their feet fastened into stocks. So that here, here's the great part of this whole story. All this will be important to keep in mind when we get back to the Philippian letter. Paul had only been in Philippi for at most a couple of weeks. In other words, he was just getting to know Lydia and the others who had come to faith. And the church was getting launched when, wham, everything fell apart. Paul's flogged, him and Silas are tossed in prison. And in ancient times, when people were flogged, it often left them half dead. Their backs were flayed open by the cat of nine tails, and this is where Paul experienced in Philippi. Nice welcome, huh? Well, let's pick up right that very part in Acts chapter 16. It's in here somewhere. I know it is. I thought I marked it. The marker must have fell out. There we go. Verse 25. But at midnight, and remember, Paul and Silas are in prison. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to that. And that sounds like quite an attitude to have when you're in prison, right? You're praying and you're singing, and everybody is listening. And suddenly, there's a great earthquake. So the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open. Everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep, seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. You see, if the jailer let prisoners escape, guess what happened? He would be put in their place. It's best he just kills himself now. But Paul called out with a loud voice saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all still here. And he called for a light and he ran in and he fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sir, what must I do to be saved? Now how would he know? He was listening to Paul and Silas as they prayed and sang. So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and all his household were baptized. And when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them. And he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. Doesn't 25 rock your world? Think about it. Paul and Silas are already in a smelly jail cell. Their backs are ripped open because of their flogging, and they're praying, and they're singing hymns to God. 
Now isn't that pretty extraordinary? There are days I come home from work and I'm grumpy. I haven't had my back flogged. I've been thrown into prison. And I'm, I have not much good to say about the day the way the day went. What do I have to be upset about? It seems to me too often we make mountains out of molehills, don't we? To us, our stuff seems so significant, our pain seems so terrible, our circumstances seem so unfair, so we bellyache and we complain. But look at Paul and Silas. They're sitting in jail, feet locked up in stocks, and they're praying and singing. Now that's talking about raising the bar regarding our attitude, isn't it? And while they were praying and singing, God sends a powerful earthquake, shakes the open the cells, loosens their chains. Paul and Silas are free. Let's get out of this jail cell. Nope. The jailer thinks everything, everybody's escaped. He wants to kill himself by Roman law. And Paul says, hold on a minute. We're all still here. Now you think about it. Not only are Paul and Silas still there, but all the other prisoners too. Some of them could be who knows who. They just want to get out. But they don't take off either. And the first thing coming out of the jailer's mouth when he sees what happened is, men and brethren, what shall I do to be saved? And Paul tells him, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and all your household. Now people try to use that for, oh, see, all you have to do is believe. If all you have to do is believe, then why did he take him home? Why did Paul preach the word to him? Why did he wash up Paul and Silas? And then why did Paul immediately, it says, immerse him into Christ? If all you have to do is believe. Don't let people fool you by quoting you one or two scriptures and thinking that's the whole Bible. So that was Paul's experience in Philippi. He was stripped and beaten. He was thrown into jail. And now as we turn back to Philippians 1.3, let me share one more thing that makes Paul's joy in this letter extraordinary. Not only did Paul experience painful things while he was in Philippi, but he writes this letter while he once again is in chains because of his faith. This time he's a prisoner in Rome, awaiting execution. And we read about that in Acts 28. This not only did Paul look back on a grocery list of negative things that happened while he was in Philippi, but as he writes the letter, he's going through some pretty tough stuff right now. But none of these challenges rob him of his joy. And how is it that Paul is able to experience joy that it so powerfully transcends his circumstances? What is his secret? If we learn this secret, brethren, we will experience truly exponential joy. And I'd like to share five principles that will help move us toward experiencing exponential joy. The first is this. We need to focus on the positives in our past. Instead of reversing the negative things that happened in the Philippi, Paul let the negatives go. He made choices to move beyond the negatives. Instead, he focused on the positive things. He said, I thank my God every time I remember you. Instead of thinking about the flogging, I imagine Paul thought about Lydia. 
and her family coming to faith. I imagine Paul thought about how cool it was to experience the earthquake and see the jailer and his family come to Christ. I imagine Paul thought about how faithful the church had been to support his ministry in the years since he planted the church. There were so many good things to focus on that after a while maybe Paul didn't even regard the negative. And you know what? You and I can make the same choice. You can look over your shoulder and focus on everything you didn't have, all the things you missed out on, all the rotten things that were done to you. But if you do that, you'll become a very critical and negative person. Or you can choose to focus on the positive, dwell on the blessings you experienced. And that's what Paul does, and it helps him to experience exponential joy. And if there are no positives at all in your past, then you can still not dwell on the negative. You can focus on the positive things right now in your life. I take it that what, what we see from here is this. Stop and smell the roses, as they would say. Find all the positive things each and every day to dwell on. For the next nine weeks, we're going to work together to memorize one of the most transformational verses in the Bible. It's Philippians 4.8. Every week we'll repeat it out loud. And I hope you will allow its truth to shape how you think about your past, your present, and your future. So I want you to repeat it after me. Here we go. Finally, brethren. Now, everybody. Ready? Finally, brethren. Whatever is true. Whatever is honorable. Whatever is right. Whatever is pure. Whatever is lovely. Whatever is of good repute. If there is any excellence. And if anything worthy of praise. Let your mind dwell on these things. And this verse summarizes the first principle to exponential joy. Focus on the positives in your life. Let the negatives go. Number two, pray with thanksgiving. <clears throat> verse four, Paul says, Always in every prayer of mine making requests, for you all with joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Later in this letter, we learn that the Philippian church was the only church that helped Paul financially. The Philippians are also applauded in 2 Corinthians 8 for their generosity in a collection of needy believers. And in other words, the Philippians had been major partners with Paul to extend the message of Christ. And as a result... Paul prayed for them with joy. And you might underline that phrase, always offering prayer with joy. Praying with joy and thanksgiving is directly connected to Philippians 4.8, thinking. And once we begin thinking about the things God wants us to think about, things that are true, noble, right, pure, lovely, and admirable, then we'll begin to pray more positively. And this is one reason I always begin my personal prayer time with praise and thanksgiving. No matter how crummy I might feel, I can always find something to praise God for. Amen. And if you can't, start in the book of Psalms. 
Start on Psalm 1-1, and as you go, find all God's qualities, all God's characteristics, and thank him for those things. And you'll find you'll have a whole new relationship with God. You'll find things that maybe you didn't even know that says about God and his character. And take time to meditate and thank him for that. A good example of praying with thanksgiving is the woman who didn't get married until she was 31 years old. And then she had 12 children. She spoke at a Christian conference when she was still single, telling people she didn't worry about getting married. She left the future in God's hands. But she said every night she hung a pair of men's pants on her bed and knelt down to pray this prayer. Father in heaven, hear my prayer and grant it you if you can. I've hung a pair of trousers here. Please fill them with a man. <laughs> Now you got to remember, God does have a sense of humor. So maybe you want to be a little more specific about the kind of man you want, or maybe it won't matter at all. I don't know. Be careful what you ask. But then one Sunday, Chuck Swindoll shared that prayer with his congregation. And a couple weeks later, he received a note from a mother in his congregation that read this Dear Chuck, I'm wondering if I should be worried about something. It has to do with our son. For the last two weeks, I've noticed that before our son turns out the lights and goes to sleep at night, he hangs a woman's bikini over the foot of the bed. Should I be concerned about this? <laughs> Chuck assured her there was nothing to worry about. I don't know. I might be a little concerned. Well, Paul says in verse 4, he always prayed for the Philippians with joy. And so a second principle to experiencing exponential joy is pray with joy and thanksgiving. Number three, rest confidently in God. Rest confidently in God. Verse six, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. In other words, guess what? God's still working on you. He will not complete it until one, you pass into heaven because you die from this world, or two, Jesus returns. He's still working on us. It's amazing how much difference it makes when we recognize who's in control. You know, there was this woman who had this poster displayed in her office that said, Good morning. This is God. I will be handling all your problems today. I will not need your help, so have a good day. And this is more or less what Paul says here in verse 6. Paul knew that God was the one who began the work in the lives of the Philippians. And since God had begun the work, God was also responsible to complete it. Because he was resting confidently in God, Paul experienced an amazing level of joy, even though his circumstances were far from ideal. In my better moments, this is also true for me. When I remember that God is in charge, it always makes a huge difference. The only time worry begins to overwhelm me is when I try to carry on my shoulders what God wants to carry on his. And we kind of get in a tug of war. No, I'll take it. It can't be that difficult this time. Save it, Lord. I can handle it. Only to find out, help! Help! <laughs> 
When I start doing that, it always robs my joy. Why? Because every time I pretend to be God, I discover it doesn't work. I'm not God. And in Matthew 11, 28 through 30, Jesus said this. This will be familiar to you. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. You will you shall find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, my load is light. This means if we're living in the stream of God's power, if we're trusting him for each breath, if we're resting in him for each step, then life doesn't have to be hard. And Jesus says his yoke is easy, his burden is light. Why? Because if we allow him to do it, then we, he will carry the yoke for us. And regardless of what we are going through, the burdens, the grief, the trials, and tribulations, when we put our trust in Christ and let him carry the burdens, life begins to become a lot easier, doesn't it? And once we refocus on Christ, it settles us down and we enjoy life as he intends with joy. And you see, the third principle to experience an exponential joy is to rest, really rest confidently in God. Number four. Cultivate healthy relationships. Cultivate healthy relationships. Verse 7, Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. Don't miss the warmth and sincerity of God's feeling, excuse me, of Paul's feelings for the Philippians. <clears throat> the word he uses in verse 8 for affection is the Greek word for bowels or inward parts. In the first century, it was believed the intestines held the most tender parts of human emotions. We might call it having a gut feeling. In effect, Paul is saying he had the deepest possible love for the Philippians. And healthy relationships with other people often open a huge doorway to joyful living. Think about how meaningful it is to enjoy a sunset with someone else. Someone you really care about. Think about how fun it is to laugh watching a funny movie with someone else. I know I don't laugh enough. Because my wife will say this to me quite often. I love it when you laugh. Here's a hint. You want to laugh? Sit down and watch a few hours of the Three Stooges. If you don't laugh, you might miss out. Yeah, I know it's stupid. Guys slapping and hitting everything. But after a while, it will make you laugh. It's so silly. Think about how significant it is to share with someone a new insight you've learned from the scriptures. What's happening with all these illustrations? Healthy relationships are being grown with blossoms of love and respect and trust, with an abundance of joy, happiness, and smiles. Let me ask you, who would you rather spend time with? Someone who is negative and grumpy, or someone who is positive and smiling and happy and so on and so forth. Think about that. 
in his first season with the Brooklyn Dodgers. Many years ago, Jackie Robinson, the first black man to play Major League Baseball, he faced venom nearly everywhere he traveled. Fastballs at his head, spikings on the bases, brutal epithets from the opposing dugouts and from the crowds. And during one game in their home stadium, home stadium, Jackie committed an error and the taunts and racial slurs seemed to reach a peak. And in the midst of this, another Dodger, a southern white man named Pee Wee Reese, called timeout. He walked from his position at shortstop toward Jackie Robinson, who was at second base. He put his arm around Robinson's shoulder, and, his, and he stood there with him for what seemed like a long time. And the gesture spoke more eloquently than the words, This man is my friend. And sometime later, Jackie Robinson said that jester saved his career. And the man never said a word. You know, people who have learned how to cultivate healthy relationships are people who experience exponential joy. And then finally, number five, prioritize things that really matter. Prioritize things that really matter. Verse 9, In this I pray, that your love may abound still more, and more in knowledge and in all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Don't miss what Paul is praying for. He prays that their love will increase with more and more knowledgeable insight. He prays that they would discern what's best. He prays that they would be sincere and blameless. And he prays that they would be filled with the fruit of righteousness. Does that sound like the stuff that you have as priorities in your life? Does that sound like the kind of things you pray for? One reason some of us don't experience much joy is because we get all spooled up about all the wrong things. But when we focus on the things that really matter, things like love and discernment and purity always enhances the joy we experience. Someone once said this to me, keep the main thing the main thing. And I think what that means is keeping our focus on the main thing of life that brings joy, which truly comes through Christ, the love and discernment and sincerity and righteousness. I'd like to close with this illustration. You know, Bud Wilkinson, the football team, he was a coach of a football team at the University of Oklahoma. And they were undoubtedly the strongest in the nation in the late 50s and early 60s. Consistently, his undefeated team steamrolled the opposition. And after his retirement to the broadcast booth, Coach Wilkinson was asked the secret of his success. How could he consistently mold young athletes into powerful teams year after year. And this was his answer. He said, when a football player goes into a game, he can play to a variety of audiences. He may play for the crowd in the stands, for example, working hard for their cheers and avoiding their boos, or he might play for a special person in the stands, a girlfriend, maybe. A player may allow the other team to dictate his play. In other words, if the man across the line isn't very good, then he doesn't play well either. If the opponent cheats and plays dirty, so does he. 
So football players allow their teammates to determine the quality of their play. Some focus on the game officials, the referees, and of course some play merely for themselves. They work hard to be the stars. And many audiences vie for the attention of the players. My men know, however, that there's only one person watching the game that matters. Only one person whom they have to please. Me. And regardless of the cheers or the boos, the strength of the opposition, the fairness of the officials, or the play of their teammates, I am the only audience that counts. And when everyone knows that and plays that way, they pull together, do their best, give it their all, and win. You know, as Christians, we know there is only one who is our aim to please. And that's God. You see, the fifth principle to experiencing exponential joy is prioritize things that really matter. So I'd like to wrap up today asking you to close your eyes. Please close your eyes as I read verses 3 through 11 one more time. I want you to listen to these words and let the Holy Spirit guide you now through the reading of God's word. <clears throat> I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you with all joy. For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruit of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. That is our step, first step, towards gaining exponential joy. And it starts with our attitude, doesn't it? So I pray today, as we read through that, that you'll read through it again when you get home. And you'll make today, as the beginning of the new year, that we start being more positive people and trying to fill our lives with more joy and allowing that joy to grow in our lives. Because that's exactly what God wants for us. Jesus Christ died on that cross and before he died went to the cross that's something he talked to the disciples about that he was going for their benefit that they might have more joy and more abundantly we don't have to be people that seem like we're always sucking on a dill pickle we're a lemon we need to be found as God's people who have something to smile about something positive in our life about and that's Jesus. And if you haven't given your life to Jesus yet, I encourage you and invite you to come. Sit down with me and I'll show you through the scriptures what you need to do to know the joy of Christ in your life because you've been forgiven of your sins. Our hymn of invitation is 317.
Thank you. 